0: Welcome, everybody, to episode 704 of First Class Fatherhood. I am happy, as always, to be here with you guys. And I have got a very special guest. Senator Marco Rubio joins me on First Class Fatherhood today. Senator Marco Rubio has been in the Senate since 2011 in Florida. He was born in Miami, Florida. He earned his B.A. in political science from the University of Florida back in 1993. And his son, Anthony, is going to be a Florida Gator in the fall where he's going to play football. Prior to becoming Senator, Marco Rubio represented Miami in the House of Representatives for almost nine years. Uh, He was the Speaker of the House from 2006 to 2008. He would then go on to become Senator. In 2016, he put in his bid to become President of the United States. But ultimately, the Republican nomination went to, of course, President Donald J. Trump. And I wouldn't count him out just yet for making another presidential bid to hit that Oval Office sometime in the future. It's a big honor to have him on the podcast today. Senator Marco Rubio joins me here in just a few minutes, so please stick around for the interview. And today's interview with Senator Rubio was recorded on video and is available on my Rumble channel. So if you'd like to watch today's conversation, please subscribe to First Class Fatherhood on Rumble. Link is in the description of today's podcast episode. And you guys did hear that right. I am putting the video of this interview out on Rumble first. I will put it up on my YouTube channel later, but I'm going to put it up on Rumble first as I'm going to try to move you guys over from YouTube over to Rumble. Uh, my, the suppression has been so bad on my channel on YouTube ever since I got suspended twice uh, for previous interviews that I did. I'm getting a little sick and tired of YouTube, to be honest with you. So I would love it if you guys who enjoy the video formats of these interviews, uh, please switch over to my Rumble account. I have the link in the description of this podcast episode for you to do that. And if you guys enjoyed today's interview with Senator Marco Rubio, I'd like to point you to some of the other Republican politicians that I've been honored to have on the podcast, including Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Josh Hawley, Congressman Jim Jordan, Governor Ron DeSantis, and Mayor Rudy Giuliani, many, many others. Go through the archives of the show and check them all out. And today's episode is being brought to you by MyPillow. Get over to MyPillow.com and take advantage of the MyPillow 2.0 and the Mattress Topper 2.0. They are the lowest price they've ever been. MyPillow.com, promo code FATHERHOOD. You can save up to 66% on your entire order. You'll help support the podcast here, and you will get yourself the best night's sleep in the whole wide world. MyPillow.com, promo code FATHERHOOD. All right, and as always, if you guys could please help me spread the word about this podcast, every father in your neighborhood, or in your contact list, let them know about the show that's here celebrating fatherhood and family life. You guys know what Father's Day is every day right here on the podcast, and here comes my interview straight up with Senator Marco Rubio on First Class Fatherhood. <laughs> Uh, joining me now, first class father, Senator Marco Rubio. Welcome to first class fatherhood. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I hope I'm a first class father. I'm trying. Well, you're here, so you made you got the title now. So uh, it's an honor to have you
1: here. Let's start like this. How many kids do you have? How old are they? I have I have uh, I have four. Well, yeah, kids. You know, I have two daughters that are 23 and about to turn 21. And um, and then I have a son who's uh, a, he's about to turn 18, going to college, he's going to play football at the University of Florida. So we're like in the middle of the graduation stuff. And and it's actually an interesting dynamic, you know, the difference between boys and girls. Um, and then um, and then I have a younger one who's only 15. Um, and uh, so all my kids are all very different. And, um, you know, they pre- present not both both very unique moments of joy. And very unique challenges that are different to one another. But it's the most, you said this at the outset, it's the most important job I'll ever have. It's the most impact I'll ever have on lives is on their four lives, for better or yeah. for worse. Well said. There's no doubt about that. And I'm right there with you. We got
0: four kids ourselves. You got the even split. We got three boys, then got our girl on the fourth try. So, And I do understand a, a little bit about the dynamic. Um, so take me back then, about 20-something years ago, uh, about how old were you when you first became a father? And how did that experience kind of change your perspective on life?
1: Well, I was 29. And it was in 2000 when my daughter was born in April. And, you know, it changes your life in a fundamental way. And that is, it's no longer about you. I think it arises different feelings in in men and women and fathers and mothers. But for me, it was sort of like this sense of, I now have response. It's the first time in my life that I have been responsible entirely at that stage for the life of another human being, for everything from whether they're gonna have enough to eat to whether they're gonna be able to make sure they get medical attention if they get sick. And that's just the beginning, you know, from there. And obviously with your first child, you know, I mean, I think back at that time, I mean, my daughter was two weeks old and I was in the state legislature and we just threw her in a car seat and drove up to Tallahassee, you know. And obviously the old, you know, Cuban grandmother and, and Colombian grandmother were like, you know, screaming at us, you can't take a baby out of the house after the first two weeks, you know, they can get infections, but we just kinda of roll with it, you know. and. So, um, you know, it was a very special time in our life. It was just the three of us. And I always tell people about kids. that said, when you have one or two kids, you can play man to man. But when you get to three or four, now you're playing zone. You know, now you're, you know, you're the two of you are kind of covering areas and, and triaging a lot. But it has been, you know, just, uh, I, I really, I really don't, can't imagine what my life would have been like uh, had I not had my kids. I've been blessed with that. It really is the greatest. I used to hear people say that as a cliche all the time. I mean, there's the greatest joys and purpose in my life I've ever found is through them.
0: Yeah, really great stuff, Senator. And what what would you say then? I mean, obviously living a very public life, uh, the the political uh, field I know in our country is absolutely chaotic. It it seems like it's been on fire for the last uh, five years or so. Uh, What what would you say uh, are some of the biggest challenges of being a senator, being in the public life while being a father?
1: Well, I would say this. I, first of all, my kids uh, have grown up in it. So since the time I was, she was born, I've been, I mean, I was out of politics for a couple of years, but I basically was in the state legislature and then I ran for Senate. So my kids don't really have a memory of a time that I wasn't a public figure at some level. Not, not, maybe not the way it's been the last 10 years, but at some level, it's always been a part of their lives. Look, the biggest challenge is the one thing you can't get back, and that's time. I don't care who you are or how much money you make. We all get seven days in a week and 24 hours in a day, that's what you have. And so how you allocate that time is important. And I would say the biggest struggle has been this challenge between you know, the guilt or in some cases, the necessity of dedicating time to what it takes to raise a family and being not just around, but present and the demands of a career and a job. And I, I really wrestled with that for a very long time. And, and where kind of the balance I found is the following. Number one is it's good for kids to see that dad has a job and that dad is working. It's a good thing for kids to see that dad is busy, that dad has things to do. Uh, it's good for kids to grow up seeing a dad who serves. And I know a lot of people don't view politics that way, but, but you know, there are things I have to go do that may not be how I would spend a Saturday afternoon where, where the choice is mine, but it's an honor to do it and I have a chance to serve others. So I think that's a very positive thing because, I, you know, I can tell you, my dad was not a talker, okay? He was not a sit me down, give me a lecture, life lessons, stuff from a commercial, you know? My dad was a doer, and I learned most of what I know about being both a man and a father through modeling, through example, through what I saw. What I saw was this. The dad who got up every day, went to work, because he had to, and came home every night to his family. He didn't go drink with his buddies at the bar, didn't go on a three-day weekend, didn't vanish, didn't show up at three in the morning drunk with my mom screaming at him because he had lipstick on his collar. You learn, and you learn from that example. You learn from the modeling. And so, to me, for kids to see a dad who's busy working, serving, I think... You know, that's how I've balanced it out. And then obviously, look, I I would say this. There are things I've missed because of family. I've missed stuff at work if I can. not If it's something that's never going to happen again, I don't miss it. Unless it's like the urgent end of the world thing. I try not to miss things that are never going to happen again. You know, you're never going to play your life's Haskell football game. You're never going to, you know, graduate. There are things you're never going to get to do again. I don't miss things that are never going to happen again. If it's just a run of the mill thing, whatever. And I hate to miss it, but I got to be at work. and, And that's my dad had to do that. He was a bartender.
0: Well, I, I love what you have to say there, Senator, especially about the importance of, of of being there and being present and being a doer as a father, so your kids see it. Because I, I stress on this show, and in my opinion, it's the number one social issue we have in our country, and that's the fatherless crisis. Uh, we have had a breakdown of our nuclear family units, and you combine, you know, the fact that the father has been removed from the home, and our heavenly father has been removed from our society, and those two things combined. I think are responsible for 99 percent of all the trouble we're seeing in our country here. And if we can get our fathers back in the home and our Heavenly Father back in our lives, I think most of these problems
1: go away. What's your take? No, I think that's right. Look, I think young men, I I know we're in an era now where people debate things about gender and biology. The bottom line is this morning, the sun rose in the east and it's going to set in the west like it has for thousands and thousands of years. And um, and men are men or women are women, and they're different. They're equal. They're equally important. God loves them both just as much. They, they play both exact equal and vital roles in society, but they are different. And one of the things about young men in particular is young men have a biological innate in you know the programmed by the manufacturer desire at a, at an adolescent age to to stand out to make themselves attractive to the opposite sex. I'm going to be a good mate. I'm going to be somebody that you want to marry and be with. And so when young men do not have positive examples, what that looks like or in positive opportunities to do things that are constructive, then I think they become victims to negativity, meaning depression and suicide, violence, or frankly, they just go into this funk where they, you know, you sit around, you know, your identity becomes, I'm really good at video games because I play them 17 hours a day and things of that nature. And then society begins to break down. You talk about fathers not in the home. There are a lot of fathers who frankly, You know abandon their kids they just flat out get up and go you know and and provide nothing and i have zero tolerance for that um and and i I think that's a real systemic problem and then the third and i see this a lot in many of our communities is uh the lack of male role models in general in many places and in some of our communities talk about the african-american community but also in some hispanic communities in this country the number of young men incarcerated is higher than the number of young men who are going to college or vocational training or the like I don't know. Society just can't function that way. Young men now have no positive role models. That's listen, one of the, one of the, one of the ministries in this country that I think is really crucial is uh, your sports coaches, particularly high school football coaches. They are, in many ways, the single most influential male role model that many young men will have. And, and that's why, to me, it's not so much about wins and losses, but it's also about how you win, how you lose, and the lessons you learn from that. So I, I do think this is a major problem in our country. And I don't think government can fix it, I think government can't make it worse. But I honestly think we as a society need to wake up and understand that just like we tell people, you know, you shouldn't smoke and you shouldn't drink and drive and, and you shouldn't be overweight because you'll get diabetes. I think we need to tell society you need fathers and we need men.
0: There's no doubt about it. And, and there is limited, I think, that government can do. I did have Governor DeSantis on here shortly after he did the uh, fatherhood initiative bill uh, down there in Florida. and I pray that more states will follow suit and yeah, do what program. they can. Uh, for it. But yeah, I mean, we talk about so every time there's shootings going on, they point to the guns uh, and it's and it's most of these people we're filling up the prison systems in this country with fatherless young men. And and that's really at the basis of all these things. So uh, I, I pray to God uh, that we could do. And part of that is the discipline aspect of this, the father that brings that discipline to the household, too. So I wanted to ask you, what type of disciplinarian are you as a father? And is that different than the discipline style you grew up with?
1: Yeah, so. I will tell you that um because of the nature of my work and my travel and everything like that, I mean, it would I don't know what my family would look like if my wife were not who she were. And and she, you know, as a mother did all the things she does to nurture, care, and provide and so forth. And so I the way I would put it is that, you know, my wife is the early intervention person. She is the immediate she's the response team. She's like and I'm the SWAT team, you know, she's the uh, street cop that's out there every day, sort of policing whether you're going too fast, whether you know uh, you committed some sort of infraction. But if it's you know when it reaches a certain level, then then I get involved. And look, my discipline is pretty simple, and, and and I think it changes as they get older. But life is about decisions and the consequences to every decision. Everything has a price. You can't you have to give up something to get something. Whether that's buying or whether it's with your time. Right, with your time you decide. All right, this is what I'm going to do to Sleep eight hours or seven hours. I'm going to work out. I'm going to spend. So you got to make choices. You can't have it all. And you can only expect to get back what you put in so in the case of mistakes one of the mistakes that i've observed that some people make and i think we're guilty of it too by the way i am is we try to protect our kids from adversity we try to protect our kids from negativity we try to protect our kids from things that are unpleasant and i don't think that's real i think that's a fantasy and i think that's actually uh, debilitating because the ability to deal with adversity is is critically important so as a perfect example my son a few days ago got a traffic ticket, his first one ever. Not for speeding, thank God, but you know, he tried to. He was going across some lane that was supposed to go. He's going to have to take care of it. He's going to have to figure out how to pay for it. He's going to have to figure out how to do the paperwork of it You know, and take care of all that. That's a consequence of it. I think a lot of times there are people that just swoop in and sort of fix it or tell their kids, you didn't do anything wrong. These cops are out of control. And I think what you're setting people up for is a very, a life of it's, it's why now we have a situation where a lot of young people, the first time they hear somebody say something they don't like or encounter something that's unpleasant, they immediately demand that who they perceive as the adults, whether it's a university president or their boss or whoever, fix it. You got to come in and fix it because this is unpleasant. Life has a lot of things that are unpleasant. It's part of the process. And um, and I just think the lack the the lack of resiliency uh, in young people today, I can attribute to their parents, the parents, shortage of, of stepping in and preventing. So, so to me is, Discipline, in many cases, is allowing the natural consequences of things to play out. Um, uh, You do something wrong, you're going to have to pay for it. You know, it's not punishment. It's consequence. Yeah,
0: very well said. And thank God, you know, he took his ticket and moved on instead of, hey, you know who my father is? He's
1: Senator Rubio and tried to get out of it that way. and some places, I might have gotten them two tickets,
0: so you know I'm just <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then, and going a little deeper into that, then Senator, what would you say that are 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 all the top value? I know faith is a big part of your life. I'm a faith based person myself. I'm, I'm a person that my family sit down at the dinner table every night together. We eat together. We pray together. Uh, it, it's a huge part of our life. So, uh, how big is faith in raising your kids? And what are the top values you hope to instill in all of them as they grow up?
1: Yeah, two things about faith. The first is just the belief as a Christian, right, that we're called to eternal life. That We're not supposed to die. We were not supposed to get sick. We were not supposed to have. That's all a consequence of sin. Sin entered the world. Some people now death entered the world. And so now we're going through this process of ridding ourselves from that so we can actually live forever. The way we were intended to when we were first created. So that's that piece of it. And it's hard, it's important to keep focus on that. When the problem seems so good, so big in the world, you recognize this thing called eternity, and that's what our aim is. And then there's a second component to it, and that is right or wrong. And if you don't have, you have to have a moral code, a compass of what is absolutely right and what is absolutely wrong. And in the absence of faith, and I could say this about Christianity, Judaism, frankly, Islam, all of them, in the absence of faith as sort of the foundation of a moral code, then what is your moral code? Well, your moral code is now, if it's without that, it's based on what humans think is right or wrong from their own mind, but humans are pretty diverse. So what you may think is wrong and what I may think is wrong are two very different things. Suddenly it's like murder is wrong unless fill in the blank. I don't like them, they're not born yet. I, um, you know, they looked at me the wrong way. they're they're disabled and really this is not a good life and so i mean you can start to fill in the blanks of how terrible that could get so to me the importance of faith in any society is that it gives you a grounding that says a you're not the center of the universe and b here's absolute right and here's absolute wrong and it may not be what you feel is right or wrong or what you wish were right or wrong but this gives you a code to regulate it when you don't have that you kind of get into the chaos we now face which is everything is relative and if everything's relative then nothing is real And
0: I think that that's why I say it goes back to to, you know, those two things combined, because if you have no faith at all in your life and then you have no father in the home as well or no family structure, we're crippling these kids in our country when you don't have any of that uh, to lean on. So uh, I I think they go together. And and I know that um, we, we just had the NFL draft. I know your son now committed to uh, Florida. He had some D1 uh, offers, chose to go to Florida, your alma mater over that. What was the decision uh, process like for your son, Anthony, to make that decision? And what is it like for you as a dad and his former coach to see him do that?
1: <laughs> well, to me, a couple things. things. First of all, it, it was his decision to make, um, you know, ultimately, you know, the my view of it always was. You know, and I'm being frank here, you know, I mean, he's a good student and he works hard, but the University of Florida, is impossible to get into it. So, and this is a route by which he could do that. I think he gets to play at a top-notch SEC program and, you know, however good he's ever going to be in athletics, uh, he's going to be able to do it at an SEC school because of the resources they have. You know, ultimately, I think the coaching staff there, uh, Coach Napier and them are people that are also deeply grounded in their faith. And we had really felt good about that. We felt good about a bunch of the coaches, but it was his decision. And it, also he just grew up being a fan of the program, so I think that's where he naturally wanted to wind up. You know, he could have gone far away from home, but it was his decision—the most important decision he's yet made in his life. And I like the process that he used for it. Here's what sports always was for me: beyond the admissions advantage, you know, I don't have to have fake videos of him rowing to get into college. I mean, it was a real thing. Is the other advantages? It forces it. It's the things you learn through athletics that you can't teach or lecture in a classroom about. You have to show up on time. Um, you're accountable to other people, you're expected to do a job, you have to give up things to get things, you have to do things that you may not necessarily want to do but need to be done. And I don't know how you teach that um, outside of some setting that that it forces you to apply it at a young age. And so to me, that's always been the advantage. At the end of the day, you know, a lot of times there are times where you know my, this summer is a perfect example. You know, My son's friends, they're all graduating. The parents, there's this big group that they do every year at their high school are going to go to Bimini and have a great time. My son has to be in Gainesville on May 29th to report. He will have no summer break, really, for the most part. And he's not complaining about it. Hey, I've had to spend Christmas Eve in the Capitol voting, you know, to keep the government open. So there are times when that happens. And it's important for you to if you can learn that at 18, if you can show up on time and uh, if you can just wake up in the morning and show up on time, I think you got 50 percent of life figured out these days. And uh, and to me, athletics was a way to sort of reinforce those values.
0: Well, I know, Senator, so many parents are concerned. They send their kids to college, and then four years later, they come out hating America. Uh, they're anti police, they're activists, and all this stuff. But uh, even now, hold on, I'm just getting a little blowback there. Uh, e- even now, uh, e- at, at the younger level in the grammar schools, we're seeing it now. I'm in New Jersey here. The curriculum has changed. A lot of this LGBTQ curriculum stuff, transgender, gender identity, is being forced on kids as young as kindergarten. And parents have had enough of it. And they go to the school board meetings to try to stand up against it. They're being shouted down, called and bigoted. And, and they're really at a loss for it. So many parents behind the scenes, uh, away from it, will say, what is going on with our country here? what what has happened to the school systems here? So well, what is your message to parents out there that have really just had it? And they're afraid of speaking out because when they do, they're labeled as a bigot and they're published on,
1: on social media and they're they're shouted down. Well, as far as being afraid, I understand that no one wants to be singled out, but you're not willing to fight for your kids and there's nothing for you to fight for. And look, ultimately, I think that's why efforts to intimidate parents never work. I think people will put – there's a lot of people out there that go along with the woke stuff and all that because they just don't want the hassle. To be honest with you, they just don't want the hassle, okay? But not when it comes to their kids. That's where they draw the line. They'll claw your eyes out when you're going to come after their kids. And you're seeing that play itself out. But look this is not surprising. Okay, you have a higher you tell everybody in order to be a teacher or be anywhere you know get a, you have to go to college. So we send people to college, often get huge debt loads, and then we send them into these places that are always been left of center, but that basically in every curriculum from those liberal arts to you know the sciences is just constantly pounding a one-line ideology largely from the left, I think Marxist left that has long dominated academia with the new dynamic is no space for counterpoints of view, right? So in many of these campuses, any counterpoint of view is now considered hateful extremist. We have a right to go in and blow up your meeting. And so the result is you now have been producing for two decades a workforce that um, has been inculcated in this. And who are these people now 20 years later? Well, they're CEOs. They're they're, uh, school board administrators and, and superintendents. They're principals um you know they're they're the people that are in charge of the media and, and in case increasingly in politics they are no longer just the young kids and you know, the, the theory always was don't worry about it once they go out into the real world um and start paying taxes and have their own kids their whole minds will change well it hasn't it's only reinforced itself and accelerated so what we're facing now is the consequences of 20 years of indoctrination finding its way now into positions of authority and power to the point where it doesn't just there in many cases it's you know, the stuff with Disney was driven by employees. Sometimes, you know, somebody goes work at a company and a week later is joining an online, you know, pressure the boss campaign to divest of this and fire that and silence this person. So that is what's happening. And that's, and and I think the problem with that is that it's happening. It's not like we are tearing, setting the world on fire in this country in, in academic achievement in math and science and technology and even the basics of history. So, That's got to be the priority of our higher education system. And like I said earlier, you have limited time. You get these kids seven and seven hours a day. Every hour you spend on some of this other stuff, which there is no consensus on, is an hour you're not spending on these essentials uh, that we're already struggling with as a country. And so the countries we're competing against aren't spending any time on this stuff. And to the extent they talk about it, they're reinforcing values that are positive for the country, not divisive.
0: It's wild what's going on, Senator. And the fact that you have men competing in women's sports and people are arguing that it's OK, like everyone's kind of just wondering what the heck has happened here. But um, it, it's very sad. So uh, I know you got a new book dropping real soon. Decades of decadence. What's the I know it's coming out June 13th, I believe. What's the book about? Uh, what could, what can we
1: expect? Well, the book is about uh, really it's about the decadence and the complacency that comes from the end of the Cold War. The Cold War ends every, the All the smart people said, hey, everyone's going to be a democracy now. We can do anything we want. Borders don't matter anymore. Economies don't matter anymore. National economies. You know, we're all just going to be global citizens. And it doesn't matter where things are made and so forth. The consequences to that were threefold. One, jobs and industries left America, not just destroying entire communities, but leaving millions of Americans without hope. Uh, The second is we got complacent, you know, and and everything we've just talked about in our culture. And so today spend time on things that are just completely unimaginable just 10 years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, if you were to ask Barack Obama or Joe Biden, you know, do you support some of the things that Biden now supports? They would have said, absolutely not. The pendulum has moved so quickly. So the result of the decadence is the thinking that, look, America's automatic. We have no competitor. We can do anything we want with our economy and we can do anything we want with our society. And then we wake up one day and say, oh, my gosh, you know, the consequences of this are not just domestic. We've basically funded the rise of China. And the rise of their middle class at the expense of ours we now have not just a competitor we now face the most powerful and potent competitor this nation's ever faced and we're way behind on responding to it and we need to respond to it holistically you know in our economy in our society and our culture and everything else and so the core of the book is to point to these challenges and, and then to outline some of the answers to it as well but the bottom line is this we are no longer in a stage in history where we can do anything we want america isn't a competition And it's a competition we're going to lose if we keep doing what we're doing now.
0: Yeah, no doubt about that. I'll drop a link to the book, Decades of Decadence, June 13th. I'll put the link in the description of this podcast episode so my listeners can pre-order. I I, Listen, I know I won't get an endorsement out of you for 2024 here, uh, but I would like to ask you this. I know you ran for president in the past. If you were president today or you became president, what would you do on day one? How do we fix and get this country back on the right track?
1: What would be your play? Well, the first thing is I would eliminate from government through regulatory uh, executive order all of these things Biden's put in place that inject things that really have no place in government. The job of the federal government primarily is to keep America safe and then some additional responsibility to our regulating interstate commerce and the like. But that's the primary job of the federal government and anything else, whether it's in the military and in the intelligence agencies or the labor department, there is no such thing as racist roads. There is no such thing as some of this other stuff. Look, at the end of the day. My view on some of those things is if you're a man, a fully grown adult man, and decides you want to live life as a woman, that's your choice. It's a free country. Here's what you can't do. You can't make me pay for it. You can't change the rules for everybody else. And you can't mess with the kids. Okay, so I I I would go through those three things very quickly and, and get that. But the primary challenge, the number one thing, and it isn't a bill, we need a strategic, we need a strategy for how we are going to reorient our economy. So as an example. There are things that make sense from a pure market standpoint it is cheaper to buy things from china or make them over there it is not in our national interest to depend on china for medicine for uh, rare earth minerals god forbid for agriculture one day and so we need to, we, there are some adjustments we're going to have to make to the orthodoxy of our economics our culture or society and you need we in congress can put ideas and talk about it but but really it takes presidential leadership to say this is the goal of our country that we need to rally and unite around And then every policy that you make, you tie it and explain why it uh, works towards achieving that goal. And to me, that's what the next president has to do. If the next president of the United States is not committed to getting this right in terms of reorienting our country for the new world we live in, then uh, the 21st century is not going to be an American century. The 21st century is going to be the story of the decline of a once great power at the expense of a new great power that happens to be a communist Marxist uh, dictatorship. Um, and and, and that, uh, that that would be a very sad chapter in human history if that were the case.
0: It would be. And we see it coming. And there's no doubt about it. Hopefully we can stop it. And there's a lot of families hurting out here. There's no doubt. I think the underdog in America today is the American family. So uh, last thing I want to hit you with here, uh, Senator, I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new dad or for that about-to-be father who's out there listening?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that it's the most important thing that you'll ever do in your life. And it may not seem that way when they're three weeks old and all they need is to be fed and have a diaper change. But I'm telling you, it starts on day one, and it is the most influential job you'll ever have. I don't care if you're president of the United States. I don't care if you're commissioner of the National Football League. I don't care if you're a senator. Whatever job you'll ever have, whatever career you're in, or ever how much money you make, the single most influential role you will ever play is the role of a father. For better and for worse, fathers can do great things, and fathers can do great damage, too. Uh, For a daughter, the example of what a man is or shouldn't be is their dad. Uh, For a son, the example of what a husband is or shouldn't be is a son. Now look, you can do everything right as a dad and things may still not turn out because that's the nature of life, and it's unfortunate, you know, humans are complex. But you give your kids the best chance to succeed, and this is a statistical reality that cannot be disputed. Kids have a best chance to succeed when they have two parents that are committed to their upbringing and and fathers are a critical component of that. And that is a role that fathers should never surrender, not to your wife, not to society, not to your teachers, and most certainly not to television or TikTok or Instagram. Uh, You cannot surrender that. You've got to be engaged and active. It's the most important job you'll ever have.
0: amen i love the message this has been an honor for me uh senator marco rubio you are a first class father all the way thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time on first class fatherhood
1: thanks man i appreciate it
0: you have been listening to first class fatherhood please visit www.firstclassfatherhood.com to find out more details you can order first class fatherhood advice and wisdom from high profile dads on amazon.com or wherever books are sold Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will never depart from it. God bless, and I'll catch you next time.